Welcome to Comeback. This is episode 231 and I am your host Connor as always. My guest today is James Calmer. James is initially from Toronto, Canada, currently living in Da Nang, Vietnam. We're going to talk a bit about expat life, work he's been involved in, projects and more. James, welcome to Comeback. How are you doing today? Doing well and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, man. Uh, usually we dissect everything to do with what's happening in Da Nang, in the creative space and more. And I'm excited where we're going to go with that. But beforehand, do you mind telling me a little bit about Toronto and your background, just as an overview? Yeah, most definitely. So I was born and raised in Canada, uh, grew up in Toronto. Uh, in Toronto, beautiful city. It's actually the fourth largest city in North America, which most people don't know about. Uh, and it's a super, you know, think of it as New York North. Uh, so I grew in that type of environment. Um, growing up, you know, my parents, my mother, she owned a travel agency. My father, he was in renovation and he, and he owned his own business as well in home construction renovations. Um, and they kind of split up at uh, when I was quite a young age. I had to grow up quite fast living in a metropolis urban city. Um, that kind of pushed me into uh, the workforce and education. Uh, I was kind of a little bit of a problem child uh, in school. So I think all of us at one point were a little bit of a problem child. But me was more of a um, uh, education uh, problem where the classes that they were teaching me were not, were not challenging enough. So I would challenge the teachers back. And they kind of found out I was a little bit gifted. So they put me in a specialty program where I had to travel you know, a little bit further than the normal school in your area, in your neighborhood. So you know, that was a little bit of a challenge for me, um, but you know, it at least gave me the education that was suited for myself, you know, learning at a, with, at a higher education level and with people that are more advanced and enhanced programs. And I felt a little bit more comfortable there. Um, I also had a lot of great mentors that, that uh, you know, taught me um, fundamentals of life and just workforce, uh, you know, people like Mike Burke, just industry people um, that taught me a very important rule in life uh, when you're very young is always have a safety plan. Mm -hmm. So as we're, you know, you're 15, 16 years old, you're in a different school, your summers, most people will spend their summers kind of as, you know, at that age out going out and exploring and playing. I spent most of my summers working and that kind of introduced me into uh, work ethics and the foundation of what it means to have a safety. You know, whatever my studies would be, I would always have some type of safety to fall on back on in case I didn't enjoy the education um, progress that I was going through. And, you know, at 15, 16, you know, you're, you're the little garbage kid, you're, doing packaging and, and my first exposure into this was in, in food manufacturing um, and basically worked my way through uh, that whole industry and became a butcher at a very young age um, and so at the time to continue my education uh, came out of school with my uh, hospitality and design courses completed and you know fell on that safety I really enjoyed that kind of hard grimy work you know, that, that discipline and also being around a lot of older people really teaches you to mature and build your work ethics and your uh, personal dynamics up to a different level at a very young age. 
um, doing that. So, you know, by the time I was about 23, 24, I became a general manager for a meat factory and food processing uh, company. Um, did that for a few years and got a little bit of little tighter bit. So I returned back to school and studied culinary arts. Uh, what pushed me into culinary arts was, you know, the idea of working with all these restaurants already and giving uh, celebrity chefs and business owners tours and being able to go out to visit their restaurants and hotels and stuff really drove me into a passion for culinary arts. Uh, did that, came out of culinary arts and got picked up by Costco and Fresh House Foods and became a product developer for them, designing food products, designing uh, assembly lines and working with CFIA. Um, from then there, uh, continued my studies as I'm still working, uh, studied business management. Um, by the time I was about 30, I got into an accident where I broke my hip and was diagnosed with a very rare bone disease called avascular narcosis, uh, which basically attacks your uh, marrow and your major bone joints, your shoulders, your hips. And basically uh, that was the reason why the bone was so easier to have a lateral fracture in, on a simple fall. Um, and then that uh, basically put me into recovery mode for the next year, fall into depression. Uh, didn't really know what I was going to do. It was coming up to the prime of my life. You know, I had all these great business opportunities and really had to rethink about, you know, how much I'm pushing my body at, you know, 30 years old, you're having a full hip replacement where it's normally something where people in their 60s lessen to, you know, you can only do so much. You're still human and something like an injury like this will put you back. Um, so during that time, went through depression, uh, rebuilt myself up, studied, worked, uh, studied business management, um, and just pushed myself through that. And then realized during in Canada, you know, we have our four seasons. It does get quite cold in the winter. Um, I couldn't deal with the uh, pain from the temperature change, so I would be on a lot of um, uh, prescription drugs and stuff, which turns out I'm allergic to. So, you know, I had to kind of make a choice. Usually people, what we call them in Canada are snowbirds, you know, in the winter, they fly down to Florida or a warmer climate. In the summer, they come back up to Toronto. Uh, I had to kind of put myself in that situation and realizing I didn't really get to travel Southeast Asia. That was kind of a big, you know, goal of going out to Vietnam and learning about my heritage and you know, kind of resetting my life in a, a more suitable environment that I can you know, still live a happy lifestyle, stay off the prescription drugs and not deal with pain from the hip replacement. Mm. And that brought me out here uh, six years ago. Yeah, I see, and that's quite a storied background. With that, that period where you were working quite a lot, quite hard, you had a lot of qualifications, but then had the injury. Did your motivations for work change after your injury? For example, you know, when you had that time out where you were reflecting, did any, did you have any thoughts or any thoughts about your work changing as a result of your setback? Well, yeah, the, it was kind of hard, you know, some of the, the main thing was the condition of the environment that I would be living in. You know, you're not supposed to do heavy lifting. Um, you're not supposed to sit too long. 
you have to be, be very careful about taking stairs. You have to, you know, I was literally certified handicapped. So I had special handicap pass for my car and you know, I wouldn't use them because I didn't want to feel like, you know, be classified as any, nothing wrong with it. But, you know, in my mindset, it was, well, how do I live a healthy lifestyle and still continue my passion for the uh, hospitality and food and beverage industry? And, you know, coming, knowing that the boom in Southeast Asia was happening and with all the resorts and the food and beverage industry starting to blow up, you know, I saw a lot of opportunity in that. And, you know, to stay in Toronto, work four or five months before it gets cold and then kind of be moved somewhere else or relocate somewhere where I could stay there permanently was kind of the healthier decision to make. Yeah, I see. And when you arrived in Vietnam, where did you go first? Did you first land in Saigon? Yeah, I originally landed in Saigon. Um, so originally was supposed to be a one-year trip, uh, kind of figure out where I was going to settle down. The end game at that time was Australia, um, not knowing too much about Vietnam, uh, but wanting to learn a little bit about my heritage. Vietnam was the first destination and then did the backpacking route all across Southeast Asia and where a lot of people would end in Australia. And that was kind of my program. Um, but I originally landed in Saigon or Ho Chi Minh and did the normal backpacking adventure thing, pick up the motorcycle, drive through all the major cities from south to north, and then arrived in Hanoi uh, and then got scooped up. Uh, started my first job in Southeast Asia was as a tour guide and project manager with Vietnam Backpacker Hostel. Um, and we were basically uh, running party hostels out on this uh, remote island in Halong Bay called Castaway. So, you know, being able to kind of speak the language, um, also the experience in uh, business management, hospitality, food and beverage and stuff, you know, to be on a private island, you know, kind of live the dream and stuff. And then also, you know, hurt your liver a little bit with the alcohol abuse um, was kind of fun, you know, and then did that for a little bit and then continued my travels, uh, did all the major uh, destinations, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, Bali, made my way down to Australia, stayed there for about eight months and then realized it was kind of hard to readapt. Um, you know, after being in Southeast Asia for about a year, you know, if you go from 50 cent beers to $15 beers, you're definitely coming back to Southeast Asia and then relanded in uh, Ho Chi Minh again about a year later and then got scooped up by a hideout hostel there with Tom and Tao and were able to recreate and one of the largest uh, party hostels in Saigon. Um, yeah. Yeah, and what was that period? Then, yeah, you know, when you've got that party hostel in Saigon, how was it feeling? Oh, it was, uh, it was good. It was uh, quite, quite interesting. You, you meet a lot of inspiring travelers, and you meet a lot of just party packers. Uh, my role there was as the GM. Uh, we had the hideout there, and we opened up another hideout in uh, Hoi An, and uh, another one in San Reap. Uh, Cambodia. So I was kind of floating around a lot of them, uh, those three locations, uh, organizing the operations factor, the events, um, pub crawls, uh, any logistics and project management needed at each location. Uh, I was kind of overseeing those, uh, making sure that it runs as efficiently as possible. 
Um, that, I guess, uh, being in Hoi An was kind of my first experience, well, other than traveling through Da Nang the first time I threw, but living in Hoi An uh, with that hostel there was kind of my experience in, you know, this kind of more mellow Dell, this little chill beach life stuff, which was really nice moving, going from Saigon to Hoi An, Da Nang. Um, and then, you know, I'd be here a few months and have to go back to Saigon or out to San Reef. But my base of operations at that time was in uh, Ho Chi Minh there. And yeah, it was, it was quite a experience and definitely learned a lot uh, about people and myself. And it was an, an adventure to be remembered. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And if you don't mind me asking, what were some of these key lessons that you learned about yourself and people throughout your Saigon era? Well, first thing is safety first. Um, don't, it's, it's a massive culture shock. And, you know, the more you prepare yourself, the more you discipline yourself to be aware of your surroundings and the people that you're going to involve yourself with, uh, really, um, you can be either a sponge or a rock. And if you're going to be a sponge, you'll learn a lot faster and be able to absorb and become kind of this community leader or ex uh, backpacking leader that when people come through you know they're looking at you for travel advice and places that you've been or what are the hidden gems or where to go to eat and you know if you're a stone cold rock you know you are most and naive you're going to kind of become an easy target for the locals or even for other people uh, that was kind of the biggest lesson that I learned there was, you know, the world is not a nice place and definitely in a place like Ho Chi Minh where population is around 10 million, it, nothing surprises you, but every surprise is still a surprise. Right, I see. Yeah, that's an interesting outlook. And with that, how did you decide to move from Ho Chi Minh to where you're currently at in Da Nang? What was that whole process like? Well, it was, well, I drove up here. Um, it was kind of like that, really enjoy my motorbikes. And part of it was because Ho Chi Minh was a little too much for me. Um, you know, when you're constantly at a party hostel, constantly meeting people, uh, you don't really, you kind of have to be very well grounded yourself um, to be able to meet someone in two weeks later, you become really good friends, you've taken them on tours, you show them your lifestyle and then you got to send them off. I kind of got a little tired of that. And also the big city life coming from Toronto, which is a massive 8 million people, you know, it was not kind of the idea of moving to Southeast Asia and being able to enjoy the beach, the beautiful weather, a little bit more peaceful and calming. Um, da Nang was kind of that next target. I've spent my time in uh, Hanoi. I've spent my time in Ho Chi Minh. And Da Nang had a lot of opportunities, you know, it had the beach, it had a city that was nearby, it was massively developing. It just recently popped up on the uh, top 10 most livable cities. Um, and it was kind of another adventure for me, another city that, you know, I would have opportunity and, but also live a more comfortable life that I can not have to worry about um, the things around me in the major city like Ho Chi Minh. And then there's a gorgeous beach here. Yeah, I see. And how have you found the overall experience? Because out of the people I've interviewed from Da Nang, like we spoke, you know, Johan, Clive, etc., they all seem to describe it as a mini paradise. And from the outset, it certainly looks that way. 
and it also has such a creative buzz. Yeah, it uh, very is a creative city. Uh, lots of opportunity here. It is a gorgeous city. You've got you know the High Van Pass, one of the most scenic roads from uh, in the world, coastal roads in the world. You've got Hoi An, which is about 30, 40 kilometers away. It's a UNESCO site in an ancient town. Hoi is another ancient town. It's about 100 kilometers away. And the beach basically from Da Nang to Hoi An uh, is only, it's 35 kilometers, which is absolutely stunning. And you can walk through the whole thing. I've actually walked through the whole thing. It was one of the first things I did when I arrived here is kind of, you know, set of footprints and literally did a walk from Da Nang, Mian Beach, all the way out to Ang Bang Beach. Took about seven hours, but worth doing it. Wake up at three in the morning, get up, see the sunrise over the ocean, and just kind of enjoy a beautiful beach walk. And then once you arrive in Hoi An, and, you know, you just pick up a grab, $5, uh, $10, and then make your way back to Da Nang, and you've got the rest of the day to explore, to relax, to do whatever you want. I know a lot of people here in Da Nang um, mostly teach online, where compared to uh, Ho Chi Minh and Hanoi, there's a lot more in-classes. So it's, it's uh, quite a big change, but it's a positive change, and it's a easy lifestyle, a leisure lifestyle, and you know, there's so much stuff to do here is one of the big things. Yeah, massively. And do you have one particular highlight? If you had to pick one thing that makes living in Da Nang so good, what would you choose? Mm, I think it would be the community. Uh, I know right now with COVID and stuff, a lot we are losing a lot of members in the community. But when I first arrived, a lot of the people I met, um, Johan, Chris, um, they were kind of, you know, these up and coming state, well, not up and coming, there were staples in the community. And, you know, you, you see these people that are very warming and wanting to develop the city. And it was very inspiring. It's, it's something that I want to do too. And it's, you know, to meet these people and to have a connection with them, even though I just arrived, didn't really know anybody and meeting, you know, a lot of like-minded people was very comforting knowing that this is a much more, much more than just a massive city. It's a little tight knit, but there's an opportunity for everyone to go and mingle and just go off and do their own things. And I think that was the main thing is that, you know, the sense of community in Da Nang, the sense of development and the sense of pride that people who live in Da Nang have. Yeah, and in terms of your professional life or your work, how have you found that adapting from Saigon to Da Nang from a work perspective? Oh, that, that, <laughs> that kind of didn't really change much. Uh, <laughs> when I arrived in Da Nang, I got uh, scooped up by the International Food Festival, um, was just working with them on a project to develop the International Food Festival here. Um, after that uh, contract was completed, uh, I got picked up by Ang Group, uh, which they own Rainforest Cafe, and I became the GM of Rainforest Cafe in Da Nang uh, at their opening stages. So basically, we set up operations. Rainforest is this uh, sustainable, eco-friendly cafe, uh, about three stories high in the middle of the city, in the heart of the city, downtown core. And that was a massive 
project that we got involved in, or I got involved in. And at that time, uh, about three, four months into operation, we got hit with our first wave of COVID and stuff. So, you know, it's, it's, that was, that was a challenge there, but learned a lot. And then once we got out of it, you know, was able to create a lot of very unique events, working with a lot of different people and bringing the community together. You know, when you work with a platform, like a eco-sustainable, eco-friendly building in the heart of the, the downtown core of Demang, you're kind of a, a new footprint in the city. And we came up with a lot of very unique events in, uh, there that really brought people together. The International Yoga Festival was held there. The Vegan Festival was out there. Um, the, uh, we would have monthly markets that brought the community together. So all these things that, we, that I did there to create these events was to draw people in post-COVID, but also to bring the community together and create a stronger post-COVID world. And I think this is basically what's going to happen with the next stage. Um, later on, uh, about a year ago, uh, left there and was got picked up. Uh, well, had a job offer from Karma uh, to come on to be their GM. Uh, so Karma is kind of the first 24-hour lounge in Da Nang, uh, and we have a location in Ho Chi Minh and Dalat as well. Uh, that was kind of uh, another change. I were a 24-hour during the day doing coffee at night turns into this club lounge and the concept there was you know uniting bringing the community together and most of the clubs here in vietnam you, they have their vena house and it's mostly um asian or local vietnamese and then you've got your western uh clubs and in da Nang, we wanted to kind of merge them together where we have a unique experience of people uh, the locals and the expats merging together to experience international music and the international uh, club and nightlife scene. So I took upon that project and basically now developing uh, that scene in Da Nang, the Western festivals and community uh, projects, um, nightlife projects in Da Nang. Yeah, and how challenging exactly has this period of COVID been for you? How, how have you navigated this uncertainty? Well, it, it is challenging because you are working with quite a few businesses. So you do, you know, for them, it's always sad to see businesses close. And, you know, when your staff can't come to work and, and you know, they have their family to feed or, and, you know, those, that's kind of the largest difficulties, but it is something that, you know, it, we can't really control. Uh, one of the benefits is that we went through this a year ago. So a lot of the things we learned a year ago of what to do in a post-COVID, we're kind of just re going through it again. Yes, this lockdown is a little bit longer, uh, I believe in Ho Chi Minh and Hanoi last year, you guys didn't have lockdown. No, no. in Da Nang last year. Yeah. So Da Nang last year, we, we had a full lockdown twice. So I'm kind of very uh, adapted to it now. Um, yeah. Even going back to when I had my hip replacement and kind of being secluded and can't really go out. You know, you kind of adapt to the ability of isolation. And, you know, for me, it's, I see something like isolation or, or the, this lockdown stuff 
I actually become more productive. I don't have to worry so much about staff and ordering and the operation. I can now focus on myself. And by doing that, you know, I'm basically business planning. I'm building up plans for a post-COVID business community and, and how can I help other people get out of this post-COVID or get into the post-COVID productive business mentality. So, you know, the hardest thing is, yes, the staff and the um, things you have to worry about for business-wise, but to be in lockdown for me was quite nice and uh, a little break from work, even though I'm working, but I'm working on things I'm passionate about. Uh, the work-wise, it's, it's a little bit of a separation. So I'm, I'm actually able to excel during lockdown. Yeah, and do you have any particular practices or any tips that you have to stay productive throughout this lockdown? For example, journaling, meditation. Are there any particular practices that you do to keep you on your game? Planning, organizing. You know, I don't... I try to separate work as much as possible, but when you're in business management, operating, uh, operational planning and organization is very key. And then when you impl uh, implement those into your own personal life, you know, set your schedule for the week, but be able to break them, organize your life, organize the things around you so that you are more comfortable at home, uh, set goals for yourself. You know, during lockdown, I usually learn new courses or new skills that to better the current skills I have. So when we come out of lockdown, you know, we're coming out as new, refreshed and better skilled um, people. Uh, I think that's mostly my main structure. You know, everyone's doing the, I do the normal thing as everyone else and wake up, work out a little bit of meditation. I think for me, the main thing is the planning and organization when people wake up and they, don't know what to do with themselves that day if you planned out your day or your week or your multiple weeks in advance you know you kind of have something to look forward to definitely setting goals you know people wear fitness trackers and you know if your daily step was 10,000 15,000 and now you're stuck in lockdown and you're only limited to 2,000 steps try to make it 4,000 doesn't mean that you're not gonna do it and if it means that you gotta walk stairs or just randomly call a friend up and walk around and talk with them, at least you're doing something positive for your life and then you're motivating yourself. You're inspiring yourself. Yeah, absolutely. No, that is a key message. And with that, coming to the end of the conversation, James, what would you like to achieve in the near future? What are your aims moving forward? I think it's, for me, um, is rebuilding. You know, globally, a lot of people are in the same situation as us. And being in Da Nang, just coming up to two years and meeting a lot of people that are very inspirational to myself and the community. You know, I think rebuilding the community is very important, Re helping the locals and rebuilding the tour and tour tourism and travel uh, industry here rebuilding businesses and setting new examples for the community of what can be done in a post-COVID world is very important. And I think that's my main goal and, and that's what I'm looking forward to is the new genesis of Da Nang. Uh, that's why we've kind of created this Da Nang 101 project. You know, how do we keep people 
um, together and uh, build a community of Danang people? And then how do we spread that around the world so that when Vietnam and Danang opens up again, people want to come to Danang for more than just the beach and Hoi An. They want to explore the city. They want to know about the waterfalls and the endangered species of langur monkeys on Sang Tra. So, you know, it's an opportunity for me um, when we look at a global pandemic or something that's negative in our life or that's not going too well, look at it as an opportunity to become better or to make things better around you. Yeah, and where can we find out more about what you do, perhaps online or on social media? Uh, well, you can find me on multiple uh, platforms. So Karma Denang, we're online on a uh, webpage, karmadenang.com. Uh, our Facebook is Karma Denang, Karma Ho Chi Minh, Karma Dalat. Uh, you can also find Hideout Hostel, which unfortunately is closed right now, but they're on Facebook as well as Hideout Hostel. Uh, Denang 101 um, is Denang 101 on Facebook and myself, James Karma. Uh, you can always reach out to me with any, any tips, helps, or business um, information that you need to support yourself. Excellent. James, thanks very much for this, man. I really enjoyed and appreciated it. And all the very best with your future projects. Yes, thank you and congratulations. And hope you keep this up. Cheers, man. Speak soon. Okay.